Welcome to today's Curious Conversation. I'm here with Peter Smith. Thank you so much for being here, Peter. Thank you for having me. And you are the Director of Business Development for VIEW. Um, and we have, I have a bunch of stuff I want to ask you because we've had several conversations recently with people that have to do with carbon neutrality and sustainability and kind of looking at it from a holistic view, maybe a view not everyone looks at it from. But before we get into that, I want to know a little bit about um, your why. You know, this is definitely something just in our conversations leading up to this that's very important to you. How did carbon neutrality become something that was so important to you? Yeah, so um, not to rewind the clocks too far, um, but, you know, I um, had the opportunity to um, attend Colgate University, a liberal arts school in, in upstate New York, and exposed to a lot of different studies and coursework and was uh, undecided for my first two years of what I wanted to concentrate on. You're in good company. Yep. <laughs> um, I ended up amassing a lot of courses in environmental studies and then math and econ. And it just so happened that they had newly launched a major that was environmental economics. It was a bit of a hybrid of, of the two. Okay. And so uh, I ended up concentrating on that and really understanding this intersection between um, basically the, the concept of the triple bottom line. So how do you do right for the planet, do what's best for people, and then make a profit. Yeah, still make money somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so being able to hit all three of those, um, and that's really been a, gu a guiding point throughout my, my career. Um, it's ebbed and flowed. I've you know, focused uh, a lot on the, the planetary health in, in my early part of my career. Um, time at Delos I spent on how do we make buildings better for humans. Mm -hmm. And um, continuing to try to seek out opportunities where I can help transform our industry, particularly the built environment into you know, what's beneficial for, for people and, and planet. So it's really been that doctrine around the triple bottom line that's, uh, that's driven me. And it's because of a, you know, a passion for our outdoor wonders and, and, and the amazing planet that we, we inhabit. And uh, now I'm a father of two and know that you know, I've got another generation to bestow this earth to and <laughs> to yeah. do what's best for them as well. I forget, I was, I was recently in, um, where, oh, I was in Missouri and I was at a museum and there was this, this plaque on the wall that said, we're not preparing the earth for our children. We're not preparing, let's see. We didn't inherit the earth from our grandparents. We're borrowing it from our children. And I love so that, I love that point of view. Um, was it something, was there, was there already an interest in the environmental side of things even before college? Or was it something that you really found in college? Partially found in college. Um, you know, grew up, I was one of, of uh, you know, one of three boys. And so we spent every waking moment outside yeah. <laughs> in the neighborhood, in the woods, you know, whatever. Yep. Um, and, you know, we, we traveled as a family, saw a lot of the national parks. And so, yeah. you know, just had a, an inherent sort of understanding of this planet and how how fragile it really is. Um, and then, you know, through coursework and deeper learning, mm -hmm. you know, better understanding those ecosystems and, um, you know, ways in which our, our footprints <laughs> as humans yeah. affect those. I'm curious, you, you, you're obviously a really smart guy. You, there's no doubt that you have a passion for this industry, um, but, but why? Like, of all the things that you could do, of all the different industries you could be in, why in so so deep into this idea of carbon neutrality? Yeah, so I mean, like I said, I think that my you know my career growth has been around how do I affect change that's best for the planet and best for people. Right. And uh, you know, technology has an amazing <laughs> capability yeah. uh, to achieve both the both both of those ends. Real estate is the biggest asset class in the world 
everybody touches real estate on a daily, hourly basis. It's ubiquitous. And so to me, there's this massive opportunity for impact. Um, being able to harness the power and capabilities of technology, applying that to real estate yeah. <laughs> and driving for better outcomes for people and planet. Um, and so that's, that's really my, you know, my, 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 my purpose and my why is to you know, affect change as, as large as possible and you can't get any larger than, than real estate. You have the maximum impact there. Yep. I'm something, tell me something that you do that has nothing to do with work. Um, so uh, I've got two kids, uh, mm-hmm. three and a half and one and a half. Um, spent a lot of time uh, doing Legos. Yes. And so uh, my, my son is actually in the process now of, of uh, graduating from Duplos to Legos. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is, is very exciting for me. That can, be a, that can be an iffy transition because they Duplos, they put them in their mouth, it's not that big a deal. But Legos, there can be some accidents. And his one and a half year old uh, sister <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> is no always you know, on the periphery. So you gotta be, you gotta mind, be mindful. Um, so yeah, you know, spending a, a lot of time with, with my family. I mean, the kids are at an age right now where yeah. they're, they're growing and learning so, so quickly. So um, yeah, definitely work-life balance. Yeah, that's awesome. As you started to put a finger on carbon neutrality as, as kind of where your passions lie, um, you know, it, it, I think there's at times it, can, it is becoming maybe more of a buzzword. And it's, there's a lot of, of meaning and there's a lot of important information behind that. Why is it something that should be important to people who maybe have not either thought about carbon neutrality or experiencing it or contributing to it without realizing it? Yeah, I mean, it, it touches upon the, the most macro issue, which is climate change. And the things that we, we do in terms of you know, building buildings and operating buildings um, has a direct linkage and connection to our overall climate. And so, yes, sustainability and green building and ESG, these are huge terms now, and they've become to encompass a broad variety of aspects. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we need to find ways in which to reduce our consumption of, of energy um, and be able to create a, you know, a, a healthier environment for, for the planet. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's a lot of trends and buzzwords that are out there. Yeah. But just inherently within all of us, we want to ensure you know, the, you know, that people can thrive for future generations off of our, our finite resources. So let's talk a little bit about this idea of greenwashing. It's something we've come across in a couple of the, the um, conversations we've had with people, um, which um, is just the concept of big companies going in and basically buying credits that you know, go against their carbon footprint or whatnot, but it's not, it's not really an authentic or you know, original change mm-hmm. versus the idea of making changes at the very foundational level of how you work as a company. Um, tell me a little bit about that, that dichotomy. Yeah, so I think there's, there's good intentions behind all of these movements. Um, and then as they mature, there's more specificity given to them. Right? So if you think about green building, for example, when green building started, started people didn't really understand what, what does it mean to have a green building. Mm-hmm. And then you had an organization like the United States Green Building Council who established the LEED criteria. And so LEED certification has become the global benchmark for what it truly means to be a green right. building. And that goes all the way down to material selection, to you know, testing of, of buildings and, and measuring for wastewater energy consumption. Um, so I think it's, it's, a, it's where you are in that point of maturity. 
Um, but to your point around you know, broader greenwashing, I think that it's um, some of it is uh, with malicious intent. Yeah. Um, people trying to just put lipstick on a pig, and uh, you know, it's more of a, a PR. Yeah. Um, others, it's just naivety. I think that they just aren't really sophisticated enough to understand what it means, and so they're trying to grab the low-hanging fruit. They have good intentions, but they just don't understand the depth of the issue. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, to your point about renewable energy credits, so RECs, so yeah, you know, a building, you know, in New York City here could be 100% powered by renewable energy, even though that renewable energy is being produced out on wind farms in Oklahoma. Right. Right. And so that's one of the inherent problems with you know, New York Metro here is that we don't really have a tried and true renewable energy source. Um, a lot of our renewables come from upstate uh, and hydro and, and other places, but most of the energy that's at the electrons that are being consumed in this building is derived from brown energy sources. And so we're at a place where we need to um, help to, to remediate that and basically right. find ways to bring in you know, clean energy sources. And so companies are doing what they can do at you know, their best based off of the, the given circumstances. I would imagine having a measurable, you know, um, all I can think of the word is original, but authentic impact um, or, or an individual impact as a company is something that, as you mentioned with New York, it's, it's heavily based on where you are. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the challenges that are facing a, a building or a company in New York are going to be different than one in California or Dallas or, or one, another place where there may be different options for renewable energy or, or ways to reduce your carbon footprint. Absolutely. And that's actually playing out right now. So there's a, a law called Local Law 97 here in New York, and it's uh, basically putting forth um, energy efficiency requirements for buildings of a certain size um, to be hit in, in different hurdles. And the first hurdle is coming up. And buildings need to, to hit that and prove that they can prove a level of energy efficiency or they'll face punitive uh, fines. And these are significant <laughs> fines. Uh, the challenge being that there are a couple challenges. One is, is that these benchmarks are based off of a national average. And so there are buildings in other territories and states that, you know, have the benefit of, of being, you know, in a, <laughs> in a yeah. different place where they can start to glean, you know, more energy efficiency because of the siting of their, their building, the energy sources, what have you. Um, also, the vintage of buildings in New York, right? So if yeah, you go to sure. a Denver, <laughs> yeah. the average, you know, uh, you know, life of a building there, age of a building there is much different than it is in, in sure. New York. The other challenge um, that is um, that doesn't get enough attention is the fact that um, most of the energy that's consumed within a, a typical commercial office building is consumed by its tenants, right? Mm -hmm. And so the landlords are the ones that are on the hook for driving energy efficiency and will ultimately face these fines and penalties. But it's really, a lot of it's coming from the tenants. And so what we're seeing is a need to you know, bring the towel and squeeze out a, as much efficiency as, as the landlord can on their base building side, yeah. but then actively engage with their tenants so to educate them and, you know, in some ways gamify it yeah. to make sure that they can also derive energy savings from their tenant spaces. So it sounds like that's really changing and evolving the role of, of the landlord from maybe what has traditionally been to evolving this new aspect of having to be responsible for the, the carbon neutrality of the building and the tenants inside of it. Yeah. I mean... Whether you're for or against the legislation, and there's there's been some some pushback and some dialogue around that. Sure. I think it is forcing this this conversation, which is you know a net benefit you know for for all of us. 
Uh, when, when the pandemic hit, uh, RxR's buildings emptied out, and yet there was still about 80% of the normal energy consumed within wow. those buildings. Um, so That's even a though huge you, number. Even though you ramp down your systems, yeah. um, you can't ramp them down all the way because there's lease obligations to deliver sure. a certain temperature um, within those, those lease spaces. And then you've got plug loads and other things. You know, people left the office, but they didn't unplug their computers. Their monitors were still right. on, TVs were still running, what have you. So it's really forcing this dialogue. And so, you know, leaders like RxR are beginning to um, centralize their energy. So taking, you know, readings from all their submeters across their portfolio to firstly benchmark and understand, okay, where are we, you know, where are we consuming our energy? And then beginning to find ways in which to uh, engage with their tenants. And this could be at a sort of a tenant executive level or even like an individual consumer level. For sure. So one employee within a, within a tenant to, you know, help them see that, you know, this is, this is the challenge that we're both facing and we need to you know, be able to tackle this together. So I think that's a really good segue into the idea of building data and, and understanding how to measure so many of these different um, metrics. You mentioned RxR, who you originally worked for, and then works well. The product was acquired by View, and now RxR is one of your biggest clients. Tell me a little bit about that transition. Yeah, absolutely. So, so RxR, for those that aren't familiar, you know, one of the largest landlords here in New York City, and um, they came to a realization uh, about three or four years ago that they were amassing a number of different point solutions. Mm. And so these solutions were solving things like operations of our buildings and energy and experience. Um, but they were traveling down a path of you know, death by a thousand dashboards. Yeah. <laughs> and so instead of you know, carrying down that, that path, taking a step back and kind of understanding, okay, how do we make sense of all this and, and tie it together in a more cohesive way? And so they founded the Digital Lab. And so this was an internal innovation and technology team. Um, with a mandate to start to roll up all these disparate point solutions. Mm. And with these point solutions, there's a lot of data yeah. <laughs> um, that was being used, but maybe not even being used. So we created the WorksWell platform as a way to aggregate all the data into a singular centralized data lake and then begun to run analytics on it and then push out insights to our property management teams, our leasing teams, and you know, even the, the average tenant or you know, uh, employee that's coming into our buildings. I'm really curious, were there, were there some of those insights that surprised you? I mean, anytime you're dealing with a data a bank of that much information, I'm sure there's things that, that you expected, but were there unexpected things that you found? Yeah, I mean, the energy one that I already mentioned yeah. <laughs> was, was certainly one of those aha you know, yeah. su surprises. Um, throughout the pandemic, we were able to get, you know, a daily report on exactly where, you know, buildings were being occupied. Mm -hmm. And so we could see the ebbs and flows as we went through the, <laughs> the, yeah. the, the various you know, stages of the, you know, of, of variants and, and surges. And uh, because their portfolio is split between Manhattan and then also a suburban portfolio, you could see variants between the behavior of occupiers out in Long Island versus in the city. And what we came to see was, and, and the data you know, bore this, was that people were more inclined to go to the offices in the suburbs because they can get into a car and drive up to their office and, and you know, walk right in versus having to squeeze on the 456 train oh. and <laughs> wait in line for an elevator to go up to you know, the 40th, 45th yeah. floor. So, um, so yeah, that, you know, that is all uncovered as part of the data. There's hunches, right? I mean, our property management teams are, are in the buildings, and so they, they have a pulse for what's going on, but it gets substantiated and validated once you've got you know, the data at your fingertips. 
So how does that, that those, those um, conclusions and insights, how does that translate into actionable things that can actually reduce the carbon footprint? Absolutely. So you can't, you can't improve what you can't measure. Right. Right? So firstly, you gotta, you gotta measure it, make sure that it's accurate. Um, once you've done that, so in the case of energy, we can start to understand how buildings are performing against one another versus national averages and so on and so forth. Um, and then you can start to identify more discrete uh, energy efficiency upgrades and, and projects. And there's a lot of funding out there now um, from the city, from the state, and from the feds to basically you know, drive ROI, um, near-term ROI for these, these projects. So understanding where there is opportunity to reduce energy uh, or to, to find efficiencies, that sort of plays it out in the data. Yeah. There, you know, I'm... I'm um somewhat familiar with Views products because we've tried to use some of their, um, we've bid projects to try and use some of their, um, the, the display film that goes over the windows for storytelling projects. I'm curious though, how do those products give you actionable data for the WorksWell data bank? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, most people know View um, from their, their great smart window product. And um, that's now across you know, over 100 million square feet of, of real estate. What they um, started to do about two years ago was expand the product suite and looking beyond just smart glass um, and looking at other smart building technologies and solutions. And so, yep, we, we spun out WorksWell from, from RxR and were acquired by uh, Vue. They acquired a, a few other companies as well and have some in-house development. And so now in my team, we're working on this broader uh, smart building product business line. And so this looking at how do we expand beyond just the facade of buildings and start to look internal. And so the windows themselves, um, they're electrochromatic. So there's a, a thin film on them. You send electricity through it and it tints over the course of the day sure. based off of the sun. Um, in order to power those windows, you need to have a network in the building. Yeah. And so once you've established that network, then you can build on top of that network. That creates a, an IoT infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So then you can connect to other IoT devices, whether that be you know, lighting systems, air quality sensors, occupancy sensors, the list goes on and on and on. So they kick off a whole bunch of data, all these sensors and, and the windows. And so you can start to amass that and get a real you do a digital profile of a building's performance over time. And that will then inform the operations teams, the you know, head engineer, head of property management, to really find ways to fine tune their building as conditions change over time. Um, the pandemic was a disruptive event. And so you know, the benefit of, of RxR of having this platform you know, de deployed during the pandemic was because as those changes happened in real time, we could see that and then be able to take, you know, take action against those. And what is that, you know, you, you, you ask like, what, what are those actions? Right. Yeah, so some of them, um, you know, center around energy, but um, some of them could be around air quality. Um, so, you know, over a thousand air quality sensors across RxR's portfolio. So we can see in real time how buildings are performing across 10 plus different air quality parameters. And so if there's a spike in particulate matter yeah. on floor three of, you know, X building, we can go investigate that and remediate it. Um, equally, we can start to understand this trade-off, um, this inherent trade-off between wanting to reduce energy, but also maintain comfort within buildings. Yeah. And so if you have air quality sensors, you can understand, okay, what is that comfort range? And then we can play within that range and know if we're hitting up against the thresholds of temperature or humidity, 
um, so that we're not putting tenant in an uncomfortable position, um, but also trying to achieve energy goals. So how does this, uh, you know, bringing it back to a human perspective, right, or an individual's perspective, how does this affect or why should the average person that's in one of these buildings care? I mean, I get it on a, on a big level, right? On a macro level, the importance of having a difference, you know, in, in um, our global environments and, and efficiency and, and saving money in buildings. But for, for the individual, why, why should they care about this? So ultimately, it can enhance their overall experience in the building. The pandemic really shone the light on healthy buildings um, or unhealthy buildings. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I spent the better part of six years uh, developing, launching, and then scaling globally the well building standard, which uh, to go back to our, our earlier conversation, you know, healthy buildings was this opaque concept. Right. We stepped in and created the well standard as a means to substantiate and document exactly what it means to have a healthy building. Um, that took off during the pandemic because real estate owners and operators were struggling they, they, right. in response to the pandemic and in response to their tenants. What do we need? What are the actions we need to take to prove that our buildings are healthy and right. safe for people to come back? And so now that, you know, that standard has proliferated across the, you know, the industry across the globe. Um, but the ind average individual now has, you know, they're a little bit more sophisticated in knowing sure. <laughs> some of these concepts, particularly air quality. Yeah. Um, they've read up, they've educated themselves during the pandemic to know, you know, what, what it means to have, uh, you know, elevated levels of carbon dioxide, uh, what the airflow in, in a room yeah. looks like. Uh, <laughs> if someone has COVID in the corner, what, what does it mean for me over what here? What are my chances over here? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so I think that real estate owners can now be more proactive in saying, well, we've done our homework, we're measuring for air quality, and we'll publicize it. We'll show you that this is, you know, this is how we're stacking up against industry norms set forth by the EPA or, you know, pick your, your, your body that you want to, you know, you know pin your, your thresholds to. Um, and say that, yeah, we're, we're compliant with these things. So we can, you know, verifiably say that this is a, a safe and healthy building. Other you know, enhancements to experience could be around um, utilization of amenity spaces. So as tenants come back to you know, offices, they wanna take advantage of you know, the overall experience within the building, within the community. Right. And so um, we can offer up to them, you know, hey, you know, when's the next peak traffic time in the lobby? And so maybe you wanna avoid that and get lunch early or yeah. <laughs> go a little bit later. Um, so that's just data that's now at our fingertips and we can put it into the hands through a experience app into the individuals and just have them you know, be able to make better decisions throughout the, the course of their, their day. You know, leading up to the conversation today, you used the term middleware, which I wasn't familiar with. Tell me a little bit about what middleware is. Right, so if you think of a, a smart building tech stack, mm -hmm. um, at the very bottom you have the infrastructure and the hardware. Um, so that's all the mechanical systems, the lighting systems, it's sensor hardware. Um, it's all the things that you know, are, are you know, physical and tangible and within the built environment. Um, at the very top end, you have interfaces, you have UIs. These are dashboards and command centers that you know, our, our property teams are using and, uh, and, and now tenants have an app. <laughs> right. And so they have an interface uh, with, the, with the building. And so what middleware is, is, is essentially that. It's, it sits in the middle. It's the meat in the sandwich. Yeah, it's the meat in the sandwich. <laughs> I'm going to take that one. <laughs> uh, so it's basically taking you know, all the infrastructure and hardware, uh, pulling the data off of it, making sense of it, putting it into a structured, standardized format, and then being able to comb through that data and push it out in a way that's intelligible for 
those end users. And I guess actionable. And actionable, right, yeah. And so those end users could be an individual within the building, it could be a tenant um, within the building, someone who's running facilities for a you know, particular floor, um, or it could be for the, you know, the base building operators. You know, we, this idea of smart buildings was definitely around before the pandemic, but like in many technologies, the pandemic was a catalyst for rapid acceleration when it came to smart buildings. Can you give me a little bit of the idea of the evolution of smart buildings over the last, I don't know, five, 10 years? Yeah, I mean, we could rewind it even further. I mean, it's starting you know, pre-millennia you know, in, the, in, the, in the 80s, 90s, um, the concept of automated buildings. And, and again, I think technology sort of underpins the, the changing you know, role of, of buildings in our lives. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so these technological advancements have started to you know, show the, the ability for buildings to, to, to do more than just be a, you know, a box that you occupy. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, automated buildings, um, you know, starts to, to bring in new technologies um, to you know, make buildings more efficient. Um, and then you have these discrete moments in time. And um, while the pandemic wasn't a singular event, uh, you look at like 9-11, uh, right? Like here in New York City, you know, 9-11 happened and all of a sudden buildings had to respond and become safe buildings. And so you saw new technologies and turnstiles and, and other yeah. things that you know, became in vogue. Some are, you know, are still around <laughs> and yeah. you know, vestiges of, of that uh, you know, response and that event. COVID, I think, you know, the onset of COVID in 2020 was, was, a, was a disrupting event. For sure. It's now lingered for, yeah. for over two years. Um, but I think there, was, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of elements that were at play in terms of smart buildings that have been accelerated. Um, not necessarily, you know, changed because of the pandemic, but accelerated because of the pandemic. So smart buildings, you know, the term is you know, morphed into a, a lot of different meanings, but... Effectively, it's, it's taking advantage of all the new technologies that are, are available to building owners um, and making their buildings more, more responsive. Um, using that as a base and as a history lesson, what do you think the, the future is? What comes in the next 3, 5, 10, 20 years? Yeah, so uh, a lot. I mean, I think that one thing that we can't deny is that you know, flexibility is, is here to stay. Yeah. Um, it was a it was a trend probably you know in isolation in in you know, few industries few organizations pre pandemic but the cat's out of the bag now yeah. it's got it's got staying power um, what that means for industries and organizations remains to be seen I think there's still going to be some bespokeness to you know what hybrid means for right. particular organizations um, but there's no doubt that uh, you know the the five you know, five days a week in the office is is yeah, you know, it's not going to come back. Yeah, it's a, not going to be the same way it was before pandemic at the at no, a minimum. No, <laughs> it won't. I was at a ULI event this morning, and they say, you know, based off of their research, um, they're suggesting that three is kind of netting out to be that magic number, three mm -hmm. days of, of the week in the office. Um, but again, what it means for different, it might be Monday, Wednesday, Friday for some, right. maybe Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday for others. Um, so flexibility is here to stay. Well, so what me, is that? Let me ask you on that, to, not to interrupt you, but one of the things that we've heard a lot about is it's going to have an increased... Um, priority on amenity spaces. Is that also being seen? Yeah, I, you know, definitely. And, and so I think that's the evolving role of the landlord and, and where we see the sort of the future of work is that the you know, landlords, you know, they're, they're, they're attracting tenants, um, but what they need to do is they need to also help to attract talent yeah. right, for those tenants. And so increasingly, landlords are gonna have to be more cooperative um, with tenants yeah. in order to be advocates for them. 
um, basically going to bat for their large tenants, their prospective tenants, their existing tenants to say, we want to recruit the best talent and people to your organization and we want your real estate right. and our buildings to play a critical role in that. And so, yeah, there's been an amenities arm, arms race, but I think that's only you know continuing to ramp up. And it's not only just physical amenities anymore. It's not just ping pong tables. It's not just ping pong tables, no. Get rid of those ping pong tables. Um, no, it's about you know other digital amenities as well, right? And so I've mentioned Experience App a few times. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's now a proliferation of, of, of companies um, that can offer an Experience App. Is that like the digital twin? We, we've, we've done a couple of, of conversations, uh, particularly with Samantha Flores, who's the head of our uh, Hugo group and she's talked a lot about this idea of the digital twin is that the same idea it's it's it? it's different so okay. so the the experience app is is really meant to just be an app for the building um, and okay. so it you know gives you access to amenities you can book you know book events you can order lunch on it right. you can get visibility into the performance of the building so you know when is there foot traffic when is you know what is the air quality within my building Got it. Um, okay. events in the local community so it's meant to be a, a digital touch point with, with tenants um, in order to give them a more holistic digital experience as, I got they, it. as okay. they come to their, their buildings. Digital twin, uh, talk about another term that's right. <laughs> kind of morphed into uh, you know, a bigger concept. Yeah. So at, at the very core, digital twin is a, is a digital representation of a, of a physical object. Right. And so there are organizations and companies out there um, like a Willow that have you know a really you know amazing full fidelity 3D visual representation of a building. Right. Um, and so they've worked with you know a, a couple of projects here in New York where you can basically create an exact replica of a building in a digital environment. And so that helps designers and contractors as well as the operators right. throughout the life cycle of you know design, construction, and, and you know, development. Um, to be able to understand how all these pieces are, are fitting together and then to track and, and measure and, and monitor them. Get more data. So yeah, get more data. Um, so we, you know, at VIEW, we have a, you know, a digital twin as well. However, we're less inclined on creating a really, you know, snazzy 3D visualization. Sure. You know, our, our, you know, our definition of a twin is more a, um, a structured and normalized data model. Basically, you know, do we have a consistent uh, ontology for how we're getting data from all these disparate systems and organizing it in a manner that is intelligible and we can you know, take that and, and actually run analytics on it? Because, I mean, at, at the heart of it, the data is pretty useless unless you're able to make decisions and yes. have actionable things come out of it. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we're, you know, we always start, you know, start from the, the value or the use case and then yeah. work backwards, right? So what are we what are we trying to achieve? What's the sort of the outcome or the, the business logic? And then what do we need to get there? And so in some cases, a, a, a 3D visual representation might be helpful yeah. um, to get the sort of geospatial, you know, representation and understanding the relationships between different systems. Um, but what, what we found is that more times than not, you don't need a full, you know, full 3D representation. You just need to make sure that you kind of understand where the data is derived from yeah. and you know, how, that, how it comes together. You mentioned that COVID was this, this disruptive event, which we already talked about being a catalyst for so many things. Um, do you have any idea what the next disruptive event or technology is? Is there, is there something out there that, that's maybe this moonshot idea, but if it works, it has the ability to, you know, change how we think about this? I mean, there's been a lot of chatter around NFTs and mm-hmm. the metaverse and blockchain. Um, you know, professionally, I'm not very involved with that, but personally, it's, it's very interesting and intriguing yeah. to me. 
Um, I recently did a, you know, in January, did a deep dive in NFTs because mm -hmm. it kept on popping up and I just needed to educate myself. So I read a lot into it. Yeah. <laughs> I got pretty close to actually going through the full process of, of buying an NFT. Um, and then realized that there's a, there's a single gas fees, which are transactional fees that are quite quite high. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's promise in the underlying technology in the blockchain, for example. Um, however, like the early days of the internet, a lot of those you know 1.0 internet 1.0 companies, you know they failed. Yeah. Um, but there's going to be a, a, a second generation of companies that I think are going to begin to get a better sense of the applicability of mm -hmm. that underlying technology and start to, you know, to take hold. To take a better foundation in what's there. A better, better sense of, of how to actually apply the technology. I think, I mean, right now it's just the wild west, right? And you've got these NFT projects that are, uh, yeah. you know, the, the, the price on these NFTs are going crazy. I feel like I see, you know, and it's, and it's not just one kind. I see all kinds of different NFTs. Like everybody is, is trying to figure out exactly how to make it work for them. Yes. And so I think most of those projects are likely to go to zero, mm -hmm. but there'll be a next you know, generation of, of companies and applications that I think will take hold. One of which I think that's really interesting um, is, is around decentralized finance. Mm -hmm. So the way real estate is, is you know, developed and financed um, can change pretty dramatic, dramatically. We have companies who are already starting to scratch that surface um, that are doing crowdsourced uh, fundraising. So there's a company called Fundrise. Mm -hmm. And so you, know, you can be a, a small investor in a larger development project. Um, but you know, with the blockchain, there's the ability to, to do that at scale. Yeah. And so I think that there's, the, um, there's some excitement that could come um, with, with that concept. Well, Peter, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. And this was actually, most people may not know this, this was take two because we were going to have this conversation a couple, of, a couple of months ago and due to schedules, it just didn't work out. So I appreciate you coming back around and, and making this a priority. Thank you so much for watching and for listening. If you want to know more about Peter and, and some of the things that we've talked about today, check out the description below and check out the next episode of The Square.